Part Second, Chapter Four of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Number. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part Second, The Isabels, Chapter Four. Perhaps it was in the exercise of his calling that he had come to see the troops depart. The porvenir of the day after next would no doubt relate the event, but its editor, leaning his side against the landau, seemed to look at nothing. The front rank of the company of infantry drawn up three deep across the shore end of the jetty when pressed too close would bring their bayonets to the charge ferociously, with an awful rattle, and then the crowd of spectators swayed back bodily, even under the noses of the big white mules. Notwithstanding the great multitude there was only a low muttering noise. The dust hung in a brown haze, in which the horsemen, wedged in the throng here and there, towered from the hips upwards, gazing all one way over the heads. Almost every one of them had mounted a friend, who steadied himself with both hands, grasping his shoulders from behind, and the rims of their hats touching made like one disc sustaining the cones of two-pointed crowns with a double face underneath. A hoarse mozo would bawl out something to an acquaintance in the ranks, or a woman would shriek suddenly the word adios, followed by the Christian name of a man. General Barrios, in a shabby blue tunic and white peg-top trousers falling upon strange red boots, kept his head uncovered and stooped slightly, propping himself up with a thick stick. No, he had earned enough military glory to satiate any man, he insisted to Mrs. Gould, trying at the same time to put an air of gallantry into his attitude. A few jetty hairs hung sparsely from his upper lip. He had a salient nose, a thin, long jaw, and a black silk patch over one eye. His other eye, small and deep-set, twinkled erratically in all directions, aimlessly affable. The few European spectators, all men, who had naturally drifted into the neighborhood of the Gould carriage, betrayed by the solemnity of their faces their impression that the general must have had too much punch. Swedish punch, imported in bottles by Ansani, at the Amaria Club before he had started with his staff on a furious ride to the harbor. But Mrs. Gould bent forward, self-possessed, and declared her conviction that still more glory awaited the general in the near future. Senora, he remonstrated with great feeling, in the name of God, reflect! How can there be any glory for a man like me in overcoming that bald-headed embustero with the dyed mustaches? Pablo Ignacio Barrios, son of a village alcalde, general of division, commanding in chief the Occidental Military District, did not frequent the higher society of the town. He preferred the unceremonious gatherings of men where he could tell jaguar hunt stories, boast of his powers with the lasso, with which he could perform extremely difficult feats of the sort no married man should attempt, as the saying goes among the llaneros relate tales of extraordinary night rides, encounters with wild bulls, struggles with crocodiles, adventures in the great forests, crossings of swollen rivers. And it was not mere boastfulness that prompted the general's reminiscences, but a genuine love of that wild life which he had led in his young days before he turned his back forever on the thatched roof of the parental tolderia in the woods. Wandering away as far as Mexico, he had fought against the French by the side, as he said, of Juarez, and was the only military man of Costa Juana who had ever encountered European troops in the field. That fact shed a great luster upon his name till it became eclipsed by the rising star of Montero. All his life he had been an inveterate gambler. 
he alluded himself quite openly to the current story how once during some campaign when in command of a brigade he had gambled away his horses pistols and accoutrements to the very epaulettes playing monte with his colonels the night before the battle finally he had sent under escort his sword a presentation sword with a gold hilt to the town in the rear of his position to be immediately pledged for five hundred pesetas with a sleepy and frightened shopkeeper by daybreak he had lost the last of that money too when his only remark as he rose calmly was now let us go and fight to the death from that time he had become aware that a general could lead his troops into battle very well with a simple stick in his hand it has been my custom ever since he would say he was always overwhelmed with debts even during the periods of splendor in his varied fortunes of a costahuana general when he held high military commands his gold-laced uniforms were almost always in pawn with some tradesman and at last to avoid the incessant difficulties of costume caused by the anxious lenders he had assumed a disdain of military trappings an eccentric fashion of shabby old tunics which had become like a second nature but the faction barrios joined needed to fear no political betrayal he was too much of a real soldier for the ignoble traffic of buying and selling victories a member of the foreign diplomatic body in santa marta had once passed a judgment upon him barrios is a man of perfect honesty and even of some talent for war mail manque de tenue after the triumph of the ribierists he had obtained the reputedly lucrative occidental command mainly through the exertions of his creditors the santa marta shopkeepers all great politicians who moved heaven and earth in his interest publicly and privately besieged senor moraga the influential agent of the san tome mine with the exaggerated lamentations that if the general were passed over we shall all be ruined an incidental but favorable mention of his name in mr gould senior's long correspondence with his son had something to do with his appointment too but most of all undoubtedly his established political honesty no one questioned the personal bravery of the tiger killer as the populace called him he was however said to be unlucky in the field but this was to be the beginning of an era of peace the soldiers liked him for his humane temper which was like a strange and precious flower unexpectedly blooming on the hotbed of corrupt revolutions and when he rode slowly through the streets during some military display the contemptuous good humor of his solitary eye roaming over the crowds extorted the acclamations of the populace the women of that class especially seemed positively fascinated by the long drooping nose the peaked chin the heavy lower lip the black silk eye-patch and band slanting rakishly over the forehead his high rank always procured an audience of caballeros for his sporting stories which he detailed very well with a simple grave enjoyment as to the society of ladies it was irksome by the restraints it imposed without any equivalent as far as he could see he had not perhaps spoken three times on the whole to mrs gould since he had taken up his high command but he had observed her frequently riding with the senor administrador and had pronounced that there was more sense in her little bridle hand than in all the female heads in sulaco his impulse had been to be very civil on parting to a woman who did not wobble in the saddle and happened to be the wife of a personality very important to a man always short of money he even pushed his attention so far as to desire the aide-de-camp at his side a thick-set short captain with a tartar physiognomy to bring along a corporal with a file of men in front of the carriage lest the crowd in its backward surges should incommode the mules of the senora then turning to the small knot of silent europeans looking on within earshot he raised his voice protectingly senores have no apprehension go on quietly making your ferrocarril your railways your telegraphs your 
There's enough wealth in Cosahuana to pay for everything, or else you would not be here. Ha <laughs> ha! Don't mind this little picardia of my friend Montero. In a little while you shall behold his dyed mustaches through the bars of a strong wooden cage. See, si, senores, fear nothing. Develop the country. Work! Work! The little group of engineers received this exhortation without a word, and after waving his hand at them loftily, he addressed himself again to Mrs. Gould. That is what Don Jose says we must do. Be enterprising. Work. Grow rich. To put Montero in a cage is my work, and when that insignificant piece of business is done, then, as Don Jose wishes us, we shall grow rich, one and all, like so many Englishmen, because it is money that saves a country, and— But a young officer in a very new uniform, hurrying up from the direction of the jetty, interrupted his interpretation of Senor Avellanos's ideals. The general made a movement of impatience. The other went on talking to him insistently, with an air of respect. The horses of the staff had been embarked, the steamer's gig was awaiting the general at the boat steps, and Barrios, after a fierce stare of his one eye, began to take leave. Don Jose roused himself for an appropriate phrase pronounced mechanically. The terrible strain of hope and fear was telling on him, and he seemed to husband the last sparks of his fire for those oratorical efforts of which even the distant Europe was to hear. Antonia, her red lips firmly closed, averted her head behind the raised fan, and young Decoud, though he felt the girl's eyes upon him, gazed away persistently, hooked on his elbow, with a scornful and complete detachment. Mrs. Gould heroically concealed her dismay at the appearance of men and events so remote from her racial conventions, dismay too deep to be uttered in words even to her husband. She understood his voiceless reserve better now. Their confidential intercourse fell not in moments of privacy, but precisely in public, when the quick meeting of their glances would comment upon some fresh turn of events. She had gone to his school of uncompromising silence, the only one possible, since so much that seemed shocking, weird, and grotesque in the working out of their purposes had to be accepted as normal in this country. Decidedly, the stately Antonia looked more mature and infinitely calm, but she would never have known how to reconcile the sudden sinkings of her heart with an amiable mobility of expression. Mrs. Gould smiled a good-bye at Barrios, nodded round to the Europeans, who raised their hats simultaneously, with an engaging invitation, "'I hope to see you all presently, at home,' then said nervously to Decoud, "'Get in, Don Martin,' and heard him mutter to himself in French as he opened the carriage door, Le jete. She heard him with a sort of exasperation. Nobody ought to have known better than himself that the first cast of dice had been already thrown long ago in a most desperate game. Distant acclamations, words of command yelled out, and a roll of drums on the jetty greeted the departing general. Something like a slight faintness came over her, and she looked blankly at Antonia's still face, wondering what would happen to Charlie if that absurd man failed. A la casa, Ignacio, she cried at the motionless broad back of the coachman, who gathered the reins without haste, mumbling to himself under his breath, Si, la casa, si, si, niña. The carriage rolled noiselessly on the soft track, the shadows fell long on the dusty little plain interspersed with dark bushes, mounds of turned-up earth, low wooden buildings with iron roofs of the railway company, the sparse row of telegraph poles strode obliquely clear of the town, bearing a single, almost invisible wire far into the great campo, like a slender, vibrating feeler of that progress waiting outside for a moment of peace to enter and twine itself about the weary heart of the land. The café window of the Albergo di Italia Una was full of sunburnt whiskered faces of railway men, but at the other end of the house, the end of the Signori Inglesi, 
Old Giorgio, at the door with one of his girls on each side, bared his bushy head as white as the snows of Higuerota. Mrs. Gould stopped the carriage. She seldom failed to speak to her protégé. Moreover, the excitement, the heat, and the dust had made her thirsty. She asked for a glass of water. Giorgio sent the children indoors for it, and approached with pleasure expressed in his whole rugged countenance. It was not often that he had occasion to see his benefactress, who was also an Englishwoman, another title to his regard. He offered some excuses for his wife. It was a bad day with her, her oppressions. He tapped his own broad chest. She could not move from her chair that day. Decoud, ensconced in the corner of his seat, observed gloomily Mrs. Gould's old revolutionist, then, offhand, "'Well, and what do you think of it all, Garibaldino?' Old Giorgio, looking at him with some curiosity, said civilly that the troops had marched very well. One-eyed Barrios and his officers had done wonders with the recruits in a short time. Those indios, only caught the other day, had gone swinging past in double-quick time, like Bersaligieri. They looked well-fed, too, and had whole uniforms. "'Uniforms,' he repeated, with a half-smile of pity." A look of grim retrospect stole over his piercing, steady eyes. It had been otherwise in his time, when men fought against tyranny in the forests of Brazil or on the plains of Uruguay, starving on half-raw beef without salt, half-naked, with often only a knife tied to a stick for a weapon. And yet we used to prevail against the oppressor, he concluded, proudly. His animation fell. The slight gesture of his hand expressed discouragement, but he added that he had asked one of the sergeants to show him the new rifle. There was no such weapon in his fighting days, and if Barrios could not— Yes, yes, broke in Don Jose, almost trembling with eagerness. We are safe. The good Senor Viola is a man of experience. Extremely deadly, is it not so? You have accomplished your mission admirably, my dear Martin. Decoud, lolling back moodily, contemplated old Viola. Ah, yes, a man of experience. But who are you for, really, in your heart? Mrs. Gould leaned over to the children. Linda had brought out a glass of water on a tray with extreme care. Giselle presented her with a bunch of flowers gathered hastily. "'For the people,' declared old Viola, sternly. "'We are all for the people, in the end.' "'Yes,' muttered old Viola savagely. "'And meantime they fight for you, blind, esclavos.' At that moment young Scarfe of the railway staff emerged from the door of the part reserved for the Signori Inglesi. He had come down to headquarters from somewhere up the line on a light engine, and had had just time to get a bath and change his clothes. He was a nice boy, and Mrs. Gould welcomed him. "'It's a delightful surprise to see you, Mrs. Gould. I've just come down. Usual luck. Missed everything, of course. This show is just over, and I hear there's been a great dance at Don Juste Lopez's last night. Is it true?' "'The young patricians,' Decoud began suddenly in his precise English, have indeed been dancing before they started off to the war with the great Pompey. Young Scarfe stared, astounded. You haven't met before, Mrs. Gould intervened. Mr. Decoud, Mr. Scarfe. Ah, but we are not going to Pharsalia, protested Don Jose with nervous haste, also in English. You should not jest like this, Martin. Antonia's breast rose and fell with a deeper breath. The young engineer was utterly in the dark. Great what? he muttered vaguely. Luckily, Montero is not a Caesar, Decoud continued. Not the two Monteros put together would make a decent parody of a Caesar. He crossed his arms on his breast, looking at Senor Avellanos, who had returned to his immobility. It is only you, Don Jose, who are a genuine old Roman. 
Vir Romanus, eloquent and inflexible. Since he had heard the name of Montero pronounced, young Scarfe had been eager to express his simple feelings. In a loud and youthful tone, he hoped that this Montero was going to be licked once and for all and done with. There was no saying what would happen to the railway if the revolution got the upper hand. Perhaps it would have to be abandoned. It would not be the first railway gone to pot in Costajuana. You know, it's one of their so-called national things, he ran on, wrinkling up his nose as if the word had a suspicious flavor to his profound experience of South American affairs. And, of course, he chatted with animation, it had been such an immense piece of luck for him and his age to get appointed on the staff, of a big thing like that, don't you know? It would give him the pull over a lot of chaps all through life, he asserted. Therefore, down with Montero, Mrs. Gould. His artless grin disappeared slowly before the unanimous gravity of the faces turned upon him from the carriage. Only that old chap, Don Jose, presenting a motionless, waxy profile, stared straight on as if deaf. Scarfe did not know the Avellanos very well. They did not give balls, and Antonia never appeared at a ground-floor window, as some other young ladies used to do, attended by elder women, to chat with the caballeros on horseback in the calle. The stares of these creoles did not matter much, but what on earth had come to Mrs. Gould? She said, Go on, Ignacio, and gave him a slow inclination of the head. He heard a short laugh from that round-faced, Frenchified fellow. He colored up to the eyes and stared at Giorgio Viola, who had fallen back with the children, hat in hand. I shall want a horse presently, he said with some asperity to the old man. See, si, senor, there are plenty of horses, murmured the Garibaldino, smoothing absently with his brown hands the two heads, one dark with bronze glints, the other fair with a coppery ripple of the two girls by his side. The returning stream of sightseers raised a great dust on the road. Horsemen noticed the group. Go to your mother, he said. They are growing up as I am growing older, and there is nobody... He looked at the young engineer and stopped, as if awakened from a dream. Then, folding his arms on his breast, took up his usual position, leaning back in the doorway with an upward glance fastened on the white shoulder of Higuerota far away. In the carriage, Martin de Coude, shifting his position as though he could not make himself comfortable, muttered as he swayed towards Antonia, I suppose you hate me. Then, in a loud voice, he began to congratulate Don Jose upon all the engineers being convinced Ribierists. The interest of all those foreigners was gratifying. You have heard this one. He is an enlightened well-wisher. It is pleasant to think that the prosperity of Costanjuana is of some use to the world. He is very young, Mrs. Gould remarked quietly. And so very wise for his age, retorted Decoud. But here we have the naked truth from the mouth of that child. You are right, Don Jose. The natural treasures of Costanjuana are of importance to the progressive Europe represented by this youth, just as three hundred years ago the wealth of our Spanish fathers was a serious object to the rest of Europe, as represented by the bold buccaneers. There is a curse of futility upon our character. Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, chivalry and materialism, high-sounding sentiments and a supine morality, violent efforts for an idea and a sullen acquiescence in every form of corruption. We convulsed a continent for our independence only to become the passive prey of a democratic parody. The helpless victims of scoundrels and cutthroats, our institutions a mockery, our laws a farce. A Guzman Bento, our master. And we have sunk so low that when a man like you has awakened our conscience, a stupid barbarian of a Montero, great heavens, a Montero, becomes a deadly danger and an ignorant, boastful indio like Barrios is our defender. But Don Jose, disregarding the general indictment as though he had not heard a word of it, took up the defense of Barrios. 
The man was competent enough for his special task in the plan of campaign. It consisted in an offensive movement, with Caita as base, upon the flank of the revolutionist forces advancing from the south against Santa Marta, which was covered by another army with the president dictator in its midst. Don Jose became quite animated with a great flow of speech, bending forward anxiously under the steady eyes of his daughter. Decoud, as if silenced by so much ardor, did not make a sound. The bells of the city were striking the hour of oracion when the carriage rolled under the old gateway facing the harbor like a shapeless monument of leaves and stones. The rumble of wheels under the sonorous arch was traversed by a strange piercing shriek, and Decoud, from his back seat, had a view of the people behind the carriage trudging along the road outside, all turning their heads, in sombreros and rebosos, to look at a locomotive which rolled quickly out of sight behind Giorgio Viola's house, under a white trail of steam that seemed to vanish in the breathless, hysterically prolonged scream of warlike triumph and it was all like a fleeting vision, the shrieking ghost of a railway engine fleeing across the frame of the archway, behind the startled movement of the people streaming back from a military spectacle with silent footsteps on the dust of the road. It was a material train returning from the campo to the palisaded yards. The empty cars rolled lightly on the single track. There was no rumble of wheels, no tremor of the ground. The engine driver, running past the Casa Viola with the salute of an uplifted arm, checked his speed smartly before entering the yard, and when the ear-splitting screech of the steam whistle for the brakes had stopped, a series of hard, battering shocks mingled with the clanking of chain couplings made a tumult of blows and shaken fetters under the vault of the gate. End Part Second Chapter Four Recording by Nick Number